Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to She Speaks Academic Muslimas. Today we are having an excellent episode featuring Dr. Shabana Mir, Associate Professor of Anthropology and the Director of Undergraduate Studies at American Islamic College in Chicago. We talk about the value of an Islamic liberal arts education and of an all-women's environment education before moving on to her book, Muslim American Women on Campus, Undergraduate, Social Life and Identity. Dr. Shavana explains the sorts of scrutiny that Muslim American women face on American campuses. Lastly, we touch upon the impact of COVID on religious spaces and her latest project on Muslim women community organizers. Before we begin, I must urge you to please share this episode with friends and family, but more importantly, please, please review the podcast. This allows algorithms to pick up the podcast and make it visible to other folks with similar interest. Please support the work of Muslim women in academia by liking, reviewing, and sharing this podcast. Now let's turn to Dr. Shabana Mir. Assalamu alaikum, Shabana. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. Malikum Islam. Thank you for having me, Sabah. I really appreciate this. I, I wanted to just start off by asking you, how did you end up in anthropology? What was your journey into academia like? You know, it's a, it's actually a quite a long journey. Uh, I started out with English literature, and I thought that would be the rest of my life. And then at that time, I was in Pakistan, and I realized that I really wanted to see some kind of policy change in Pakistani education. And so I worked my way into the discipline of education and education policy studies. But in education policy studies, I was lucky enough to find a department at Indiana University that specialized in educational anthropology. And then I realized that it was the anthropological analysis that was most hospitable to the sort of analysis that I wanted to do. So I moved closer to anthropology and away from the more numbers-oriented education policy studies. And now I feel like I'm fully at home in anthropology. Oh, wow. That is a beautiful journey, especially Mm -hmm. because this idea that, you know, when our children choose careers, we think they're going to end up in one place. But then um, down down the line, it's completely different. Yes. And this is a really uh, nice thing of our contemporary world that we do have some mobility uh, in terms of careers, but also in terms of academic disciplines. I mean, to some degree, it is a privilege to be able to move around in academia from discipline to discipline. Not everybody is able to do it. Uh, and not everybody can move with all the, you know, the sort of furniture that you need in terms of academic privilege, jobs, etc. So, um, so those can be some difficulties. Yeah. I know that you also teach at American Islamic College in Chicago, and you also teach a course on gender and Islam. Can you tell uh, tell me a little bit about your school, American Islamic College? I mean, most people would be surprised to know that this exists in Chicago. And also tell me about that course in particular. I'm, I'd love to. American Islamic College is a place where I ended up in 2015, and I had never thought of myself as teaching at a Muslim institution. In fact, I had no idea that American Islamic College existed and that it was not a seminary, but that it was a liberal arts college in the Muslim tradition. And oh, wow. so it brings the best of both worlds, right? So it's in Western academia, and it's very much an American college, and it, but at the same time, it brings the liberal arts tradition and is a hospitable home 
for Islamic studies. So we have a BA in Islamic studies and an MA in Islamic studies, and we also have a chaplaincy program. My role at American Islamic College is as associate professor of anthropology. Uh, and in that role, I teach the general education courses. I'm also a director of undergraduate studies, and I teach many of the Islamic studies courses like the one you just mentioned, which has been very popular even outside of American Islamic College. So we always welcome people who want to take non-degree courses. I've had a number of students who've come to take especially that course, Gender and Islam. It's really been fascinating to me to see that it's quite rare to have a course on Islam and gender that does the kinds of things that we do. So because we are a Muslim college, we can speak to a critical analysis of gender within Islam and the sort of the, the history of gender and Islam, as well as the ethnographic study of women and sexual minorities, etc. And this, doing this sort of thing that we can do in a Muslim context means that we can go further. Right. So if you're in a uh, sort of a majority uh, non-Muslim class and you're attempting to teach this course, you spend a lot of your a lot of your time talking about how Muslims are human beings. Right. And <laughs> we don't have to we don't have to do that. Right. So we start with an embrace of the tradition and then also looking at the tradition in terms of the human component of it. So we can address the human component, knowing that the Quran is divine revelation, but but the interpretive work is human. And so right. that's not something we have. We don't have to spend a lot of time doing that. And so it's really wonderful, the sorts of things, the sort of critical analysis that we can do in this course in a very safe way. Right. Uh, and safety means that you can make more progress intellectually. You don't have to fear what happens next? What are the non-Muslims in class going to think? Uh, if I address, for example, hijab or if I address domestic violence, 434, what are the non-Muslims going to think? They're going to say, oh, no, right. I, I always knew that these were like this. Yeah. So, so we can really go at it in a more incisive way and in a way that while reveres the tradition, and we very much revere the tradition, I very much love my tradition, and at the same time, we can bring a, uh, an analytical gaze to it. This completely resonates with me. Thank you so much for saying everything you just said, because I, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. So I would encourage people and maybe myself as well, uh, yes. because it sounds like such a welcoming space to be in where you can have that sort of conversation. So folks, yes. look out for Islam <laughs> and Gender course at American Islamic College Fall yeah. 2021. Absolutely. So thank you for that. In I know that in the United States, there's a certain degree of xenophobia mm. uh, that is displayed towards brown and black folks that speak yes. languages other than English with nondescript American accent. Mm. Uh, so listening to some of your talks and following you on social media, I've sort of come to realize that you actually speak and have familiarity with a lot of languages. How did that come <laughs> about? Uh, but also, what value do you see in retaining your powers? Hmm, this is a good question. I've always loved languages. In fact, I was talking about my academic journey, and that academic journey could have gone anywhere. I was really interested in Urdu literature. I was really, I loved 
Persian. I, I took courses in Persian when I was in Lahore. We le- I learned Farsi. I still read some Farsi literature. My Farsi is not very good. And uh, Arabic, of course, is something that I have a great love for, and I've been learning it. There were uh, I've gone up and down in terms of my immersion uh, in the context. So sometimes I speak very fluently, and sometimes I don't. So I love uh, languages. I love uh, Punjabi as well. I come from a Punjabi background, and so so all of these languages. Languages. I I just love the human expressions in these languages and their cultural roots and their the diversity of their expressions. I I just love them. Uh, my mother loved languages. My uh, my family was a really good place uh, to do this. But I was especially interested in bringing them together. So one of the things that I find when I uh, speak to, uh, for example, Pakistani audiences is that they're often very surprised by how at home I am in speaking both Urdu and English. And I really enjoy speaking both. But when you speak Urdu, you are almost occupying a different world than mm-hmm. when you speak English, right? And you're a philosopher. You can kind of see how mm-hmm. that happens, right? How we create a different world when we speak a certain language. So I love my languages and it just happened because I just pick them up along the way and I I, I wish I could have more. <laughs> <laughs> it is a great skill to have and I'm I'm very glad that you're retaining your skills because it's very valuable. I also saw that you went to uh, Kennard College in, in Lahore. Yes. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, one of the schools I was accepted into for my undergrad was Smith College, which is an all-women's oh. college. I didn't end up going there, but mm-hmm. the idea of an all-women's college was, was mm-hmm. very appealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your experience of going to an all-women's college for your undergrad? Yeah. And yeah. what were some of the positives of having oh, that yeah. environment? Right. So uh, so I grew up in Pakistan. Um, I was born in England and then my parents decided that they didn't want to be immigrants. And so they moved back. <laughs> and at that point, I was about um, six, seven years old. And so we moved back. Right. So at that point, I had to actually learn Urdu. So my first language was English. And then I attended the Convent of Jesus and Mary School, which is in Lahore. And that was all girls. Right. So it was an all girls school all the way through. And then uh, Kinnaird College in Lahore uh, has a long history. It's considered a very uh, good college. And so that also was an, uh, a place that was, I felt that was hospitable uh, in many ways. Um, my two choices were Lahore College for Women and Kinnaird College for Women. And I ended up going to Kinnaird College because most of my friends from school were going to Kinnaird College. So I ended up going there. I felt that attending a girls' school and then a women's college took out a lot of the distractions that saw many people experiencing. Um, so, for example, I'm raising a girl here in the United States. Uh, she attends, you know, public school, uh, and there are some issues with, for example, encountering toxic masculinity even at a very young age. Right. So. Right. But I'm not dogmatically uh, in favor of girls' education. I do see a lot of value in it, but I also see value in, at appropriate ages, having mixed gender education in order for people to adapt to uh, a society where we do live together, right? And we uh, learn to respect each other. But I do see the value 
of uh, girls' education and women's education uh, in patriarchal cultures, which is most cultures. Right. right. So, so we all always say people always say, oh, you know, if you have mixed um, gender education, then boys will learn to be polite. It's like, you know, my girl, <laughs> my girls are not like your jungle gym for you to learn to be polite. We, <laughs> I'm not raising them to educate you. So so that's that's part of my questions that I raise about. Mixed yeah, education. definitely. Uh, I mean, could you give me an example of the sort of toxic masculinity you're talking about that you don't get exposure to in an all-women's environment? So I actually did attend a uh, co-educational, you know, I went to Punjab University to do my master's in English back in Lahore. And the thing is that I was a very <laughs> tough young woman, so I didn't really experience a lot of that sort of thing, but I did see other young women experience guys bothering them pestering them um like on the occasional push you know th things like this right yeah it definitely that kind of for example pestering as you said takes away right. uh, your brain space space yes. that you're supposed to be you know reserving for your for your education Edu for exactly furthering yourself and then now you are thinking about how do I avoid the scenario how do I enter campus so that I don't get pestered by xyz yeah. without offending him too much and without yeah. coming off as a prude or a uh, you're so right so it does occupy a lot of brain space uh, or for example girls who try not to seem too smart Right. Right. Uh, right. Girls who try to play down being smart. Um, oh, that was and then, yeah. yeah. So these are these are all issues uh, that we do deal with. Right. You can't right. just say throw them into the mix and it'll work itself out because that's a lot of damage that you're doing. And in again, in patriarchal cultures, which we are still not addressing. Right. So we're not right. addressing the basic problem of toxic masculinity in patriarchy. In fact, it's getting worse, you might argue. And so that but then we throw our vulnerable young women into bubbling patriarchal toxic mix and yeah. then we expect them to emerge unscathed and they do not. Right. So I'm 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 not happy with that. Like if why should my daughter have to dedicate brain space to dealing with that crap, you know? Yeah, I agree. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know you're also the author of Muslim American Women on Campus, Undergraduate mm. Social Life and Identity, which is by uh, University of North Carolina Press. Yes. What was your motivation for working on Muslim American women on American campuses? I mean it's a very niche topic. How did this yeah. project come about? Well, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's funny because uh, when I first started my uh, research for this, this was right after 9-11. But when I proposed my research, it was before 9-11. Oh. So uh, I was actually thinking about a few different research projects. I was interested in Muslim uh, educational nonprofits. I was interested in uh, Muslim kids in grade schools. But the nonprofits issue uh, demanded funding and I didn't have funding. And then the, the topic of studying Muslim kids at school required a certain level of a higher level of IRB review. And so uh, I decided um, to study women. And actually, this was in conversation with my husband. I was like, well, you know what? What about this? And he said, you know what? I'm sick and tired of hearing non-Muslims talk about Muslim women. Why don't you do it? So a Muslim woman who's got a track record of dealing with issues of Muslim women 
they should be the one to speak to these issues, not some uh, non-Muslim woman or journalist who wants to be sensationalistic about it. So actually, I remember him really pushing me and saying, you should be the one to do this. And at that point, I was also interested in sort of progressive uh, Muslim causes and kind of critiques and so on. So I said, you know what, that's a really good idea. I should do this. And somebody's got to do it, right? And you're right in in that it was very niche and it was not done. Right. So at that time, there was nothing on uh, Muslim American women like this. There was no ethnographic data on Muslim Americans, period. Uh, There was nothing about Muslim American college students and very little on youth. And a lot of it was just editorializing overviews. Uh, in terms of the American research. So this was a brand new project and it was very intimidating to do it. And then add to that the stress of 9-11. So 9-11 became this ever-present thing in our lives. And so then you wanted to go out and do research and say to people, so what is it like being Muslim right now? (laughs) They're like, leave me alone. (laughs) I'm sick of dealing with this. So, So it was not easy. But the timing, I feel, was it was kind of meant to be. And I'm very glad that I did it. And, you know, I hope that your listeners will take a look at the book. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I'm very glad you took on this project as well, because it's very much needed to hear those particular voices Mm. and not be talked down to and talked about, but rather be talked to. Yes. Um, I know that in your book, you talk about double scrutiny. Can you Mm. talk a little bit about what does that mean? And how do Muslim women navigate the scrutiny? Yeah. So I really like that you said that this was very much about hearing the voices of Muslim women instead of hearing what other people say about Muslim women or what Muslim men think Muslim women should be like or non-Muslim people think Muslim women should demand and so on and so forth. So my motivation was to listen to Muslim women and uh, to make sure that their voices are heard uh, and their diverse voices are heard. So that was another piece of it, right? And that making sure that people realize that we are not in a box. We're not all oppressed women. We're not all women who are saying one thing. We're not all wearing hijab. You know, we're not all the same kind of thing. You can't predict what a Muslim woman is going to say, right? So that was one important thing for me. But the scrutiny aspect of it was, is also related to that. So I talk about the double scrutiny in terms of like, you know, people always want to know, what are the Muslim women like? Are they in trouble? Can we save them? Right. That's one thing. Right. So Chandra Mohanty, she says, uh, white uh, men saving brown women from brown men. Basically, that that kind of project. So I'm sick and tired of that. You go away. We're doing this. If you want to help out, ask us. Right. If we need it, if we need your help. So that's one piece of it. Then the other piece of it is the community surveillance of Muslim women and their bodies. So we've had this for many, many years now, the constant surveillance. What is she wearing? What is she doing? How is she behaving in public? All of these things where the same surveillance is not extended to men. Right. So we 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 know this. So there's a double scrutiny. And I talk about this like the almost like the twin towers of surveillance on Muslim women. One is from the inside and the other is from the outside. And so Muslim women are dealing with that sort of double scrutiny all the time. 
and they are dealing with it in different ways. So in my book, for example, I talk about one of the ways as being sort of rejecting that scrutiny and saying, I am not going to be in your box. I am sort of mixing, matching my own responses to life and to, to my faith. And you don't decide how I do this, right? And the mm. other, another aspect of it is what I call kind of an essentializing sort of a quote-unquote official Islam approach. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that approach says, okay, so you think Muslims are like this. And you think Muslims are all religious and uptight. And all of them are just like walking Qurans, basically, right? <laughs> we have no, we're not real people. We are cardboard, two-dimensional things that you can predict. You can always predict what we're going to say. Uh, so that's what you think. Okay, here you go. I'm going to give you that predicted response. So right. some people in public will actually perform that predictable response, where in their private lives, sometimes they don't live like that. Right. right. And so that's kind of the symbolic violence that is done to us in that we very often do not have what we call the what I call in my book, the freedom to be. Right. Because mm-hmm. you've always already decided who I am. I'm Muslim. Therefore, I should look like this, be like this, practice like this. If I don't do it, then you say, oh, are you not really a Muslim? Are you a nominal Muslim? Do you actually <laughs> hate Islam? Are you an ex-Muslim? Right. So this constant like, oh, you don't right. wear hijab. That must mean you're like. Uh, a crazy feminist like uh, right. no I am a feminist and I'm not crazy and like so you have to start by like screeching to a halt and saying excuse me can you rethink your questions right right the questions are always the wrong questions right. <laughs> <laughs> well I'm it, sure it, you've encountered the same sort of thing oh, 100% but it takes a Muslim <laughs> moment to be asking the right questions yes and so I'm yes. glad you did yeah, um, I know. Well, my in- my participants were amazing, right? Oh. They were amazing. Like if you read my book, it's their voices and their words that it will just bowl you over, because yeah. they just you know, and they're undergraduates and they just say it like it is. It's really just wonderful. I I'm I'm so honored to have been in conversation with them. Excellent. I know the past year has been extremely difficult for everybody, um, but uh, in particular, it's been interesting how religious spaces have responded to the pandemic. Mm. And I know you've been speaking about Muslim responses and uh, religious spaces during the time of COVID. What were some of the issues that you noticed uh, in some of the communities and how can our communities respond better as things go back to quote unquote normal? Yeah, that's interesting, right? What is normal? So we, COVID has forced us to think about what is normal and is normal good enough for us. And I hope that we continue to ask that question instead of trying to go back to that normal. And that is on so many levels. So uh, in in terms of the uh, mosque responses, we saw that many mosques actually had responded fairly well in terms of COVID safety guidelines, social distancing, shutting them down, which was quite unprecedented. So that was good. These are all good things. But when they opened, then they... uh, the way that they were reducing numbers was by cutting women. Some of the, some, many of the mosques did this, that they said, well, since we must cut numbers uh, and we must have social distancing, sorry, no women, right? That's not, not okay because 
it really replicates the same sort of uh, approach that we see on a day-to-day basis in the normal <laughs> Muslim community. So right. people will often create uh, mosque spaces so that they automatically exclude women. So the architectural design will exclude women. They'll make little basements or they'll mm-hmm. make little rooms. And once there's overflow for Juma or for Eid, then the men will occupy those spaces and then there's just no, and then you're sent back, right? Mm-hmm. Or the spaces are inferior. Hind Maki has done a lot of work uh, in her Tumblr uh, blog, Side Entrance. So this really shows how poor our uh, hospitality has been in, in terms of including uh, Muslim women in mosque spaces. So I said that when we saw these mosques saying, sorry, no women for this Eid namaz or for Tarawih or for whatever, then it really just kind of replicated. It used COVID. It weaponized COVID to Uh, perpetuate the same sort of inequalities that we see on a regular basis. And it wasn't because of COVID, but it really was using COVID. It it deployed COVID to replicate the exclusion of women from these spaces. Right. And I'll definitely put the Tumblr in maybe in our show notes as well. So people can see the documentation of women's spaces. Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted to end with asking you about any new projects, any passion projects that you're currently working on. Oh, yeah. So so something that I'm working on right now relates to Muslim women, actually. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, I'm actually working on a project that relates to the work of some Muslim women organizers and other people that are doing amazing work and mm-hmm. really kind of new work in the field of anti-racism, in the field of Islamophobia, in the fields of sort of gendered Islamophobia, militarism, and I'm listening, uh, I'm recording their stories, their trajectories of how they came to this work and how they developed it. Uh, And actually, as I speak to them about their stories, the same double scrutiny and the double exclusion comes up. In terms Mm. of the nonprofit world, uh, they face uh, racism and Islamophobia. And in terms of the, the Muslim organization issue, the same issue of misogyny misogyny and sexism comes up. So very often, uh, women organizers, Muslim women organizers are excluded from these old boy gatekeeper clubs. But also, I'm doing this work for another reason, and that is as an academic, I want to center the work of organizers. We've gone through a lot politically in this country, and I feel that the work of organizers has been central to any improvement in our political discourse and any learning that we've done over the past several years. So I want to really center the work of Muslim women organizers. Their work is largely underrepresented in a lot of our work. And I've also realized that some academics, when they do work with organizers, they don't center their work and they don't properly credit their work. And so this is another reason that I want to really center the work of Muslim women organizers and to trace their trajectories and to give them an opportunity. Um, My hope is that I do this and they have an opportunity to reflect on their work and where they want it to go next. 
Inshallah. That sounds like an amazing project. I'm very um, excited about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it definitely, it's a much needed project as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And I 100% agree with your analysis of the double scrutiny, even within yes. the work of organization. Yes. And uh, I also agree with your statement about how community organization mm. is central to any social progress and yes. in our society. Yes. Um, yeah. So great work that you're you're taking on. I'm, I look forward to that next project then. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I ask for your prayers. It's, uh, you know, something I feel very strongly about and I hope I'm, I'm successful in doing it. Inshallah. Well, yeah. thank you so much for coming on, for speaking so candidly about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll be definitely following your work uh, as we go forward. Thank you so much, Sabah. I really appreciate this. Yeah. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam.